Today's reading is Jeremiah 29, 1-14. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the king of Shaphan, and Jemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you too will find welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Last year, an op-ed piece appeared in the New York Times that caught a lot of people's attention. It was simply titled, Googling for God. The author, uh, Seth Stevens Davidowitz, opened with these words. It has been a bad decade for God, at least so far. Despite the rising popularity of Pope Francis, who was elected in 2013, Google searches for churches are 15% lower in the first half of this decade than they were during the last half of the previous one. Searches questioning God's existence are up. Many behaviors that he supposedly abhors have skyrocketed. Porn searches are up 83%. For heroin, it's 32%. How are the Ten Commandments doing? Not well. Love thy neighbor is the most common search with the word neighbor in it, but right behind at number two is neighbor porn. The top Google search, including the word God, is God of War, a video game with more than 700,000 searches per year. The number one search that includes how-to and Walmart is how to steal from Walmart, beating all questions related to coupons, price matching, or applying for a job. 
I'm sorry, I just, that just struck me as funny. That's sad, actually. Now, to be fair, Google searches don't necessarily convey reality as it really is. But the trends are pointing away from God. Long-term data reveals that there's a consistent increase in the number of people who are identifying as atheists, as agnostic, or as nuns. That's N-O-N-E-S. I suggested last week that we are in the midst of what Alan Roxborough has described as the great unraveling. Some of you, somebody asked me, who is Alan Roxborough? What, who, who is this dude? So I decided to create a slide. That's the book that, uh, the most recent book that I'm referring to, Joining God, Remaking Church, Changing the World. This guy's been around for a long time. He was at the front of the, of the whole missional conversation back in the 80s. Uh, was someone who was very, I mean, he was uh, in conversation with Leslie Newbigin, the famous British missionary and missiologist. So this guy has some real credibility, at least in the world in which I uh, traffic. As he talks about this great unraveling, he says that it basically began in the 1960s. And Hugh MacLeod, in his book, The Religious Crisis of the 1960s, says this. In the religious history of the West, these years, the 60s, may come to be seen as marking a rupture as profound as that brought about by the Reformation. The 1960s was an international phenomenon. Now you think about what took place in the 1960s, what emerged as cultural forces in the 1960s. This is just a few. The baby boom, the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, the sexual revolution the feminist movement, suburbanization, that all began in the 60s. Expansion of higher education to the middle class. If you go back and you look at what took place in the 60s, the 60s have shaped us to what we are today. And that's why when he says it's as groundbreaking as what took place potentially in the Reformation, I think he's on to something there. And because of that, as, as Roxborough points out, that the, what emerged out of the 60s has gradually created this great unraveling. And so there's a sense in which there's something deeply amiss in Western society and, and specifically in North American culture. As I said last week, it's a partial reason that we have the current political climate that we do that has given rise to such a populist candidate like Donald Trump. There's a deep sense that what we've called Western society is falling apart. It's coming apart. There's a, there's a strong sense of dislocation. And his explanation, for those of you who weren't last week, weren't here last week, I'm repeating just a little bit. His explanation is that modernity, the modern Western experiment, was a massive wager. And what was the wager? Well, he says that we came to believe, we, actually we came to be convinced that through human agency we could live well without God. And so in place of, human, in place of God's agency, we placed human agency, and modern West, the modern West created a new trinity, which is the self, capitalism, and the state. And I don't know if you're paying attention to the political climate. Most of the time we get so exhausted by this time that we start dialing and tuning out what we're, you know, all the banter that's going on in the news. But if you listen historically, not just right now with the current political climate, but historically, you listen to what, it, what we are told or what the appeal is to us as the voters, it is this, in my, my estimation. 
We, the state, will fix the economy, usually through some form of capitalism, so that you might have new and renewed prosperity, the self. So those three things typically go together in all the political discourse today. The state, along with the economy and capitalism, is going to help you because we know that you are the most important thing to you. And so in the past 300 years, we in the West have invested all of our hope and all of our agency in those three things And as Roxborough says, we then made the church and therefore God useful adjuncts to these primary wagers as to how to make life work. And so you have this massive focus on the self that is then supported by the capitalism and supported by the state. Where is God? Well, God is still there, especially in America, but now God is useful. He's useful to support these three things. So increasingly, people feel that modernity's wager was a huge lie, but they don't know what to do about it. And frankly, there's a gnawing sense that no one knows what to do about it. A civilization turned in on itself, or on the self, which uses capitalism and the state and God to serve the self, is incapable of moral guidance. Where does a civilization turn to discover what we ought to do? Think about that word, ought. In our culture today, there is no sense of oughtness other than what is best for the self. History reminds us that civilizations do not last forever. My wife and I have been watching Neil Ferguson's uh, award-winning series that you can watch on YouTube called Civilizations. He's a British historian. And the question that is raised is, are we living at the decline of Western civilization? And voices like Alistair McIntyre and Neil Ferguson have suggested that the West, which dominated the world from the 16th to the 20th centuries, is in decline. Now, there's two instinctive responses to this. Magnify the peril and minimize the peril. First, magnify the peril. The magnify the peril response is like Chicken Little. The sky is falling. So where there's this sense of unraveling, then there's this tendency to magnify the peril, and you, and you see it kind of in this extreme form with, with, with advertisements that pop up on your screen to buy gold for the coming global economic collapse. Or I think that some of the conspiracy theories that, uh, that seem to become much more popular and much more prevalent in our culture are also symptomatic of people's sense of this great unraveling. They don't know how to explain it, so what do you do? You find conspiracy theories that can explain it. Again, I think it's symptomatic of this great unraveling. The Christian version is to see it, all this decline as signs of Jesus' imminent return. And of course, the assumption is that the United States is at the center of God's prophetic timetable, and that Jesus had that in mind when he was doing the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 13. I'm glad some of you laughed, because in my world, my theological world, that was very funny. Not so funny in many other people's worlds. (laughs) Sick theological humor. 
What about minimizing the peril? How does that happen? Well, that's typically by seeking some form of control, whether it's better technology or right management to fix whatever we're facing and to guarantee success. And again, there, you hear this in the language of the political candidates at this point. It's about, I'm going to fix the economy uh, through, I'm going to provide some kind of control so that something doesn't get out of control and so that you have a better life. Or I'm going to predict. There's predictability that's, that's attached to control. Someone this week, I saw just a headline blurb about how many jobs someone, one of the candidates was guaranteeing. Predictability, control. Those are all things that are all part of minimizing the peril. The Christian version is if we can fix the church, all will be well. And that's ecclesiocentrism because the focus is on what kind of church is really needed to address what's going on in our world. Related to that is clericalism. The clergy represent God. They must have the answers. They can fix this. They can figure this out. And I think attached to that, as I was reflecting on it this week, is the celebrity pastor phenomenon that seems to be very much a North American phenomenon, at least from my limited experience, but it also seems to have arisen or, or emerged more so from the 60s onward. And I have lived through the 60s onward. What do I mean by the celebrity pastor phenomenon? Well, perhaps it's a way of minimizing, and I'm just saying perhaps, perhaps it's a way of minimizing our fears about the unraveling that is taking place. I mean, if the celebrity pastor can draw huge crowds, he must have the answers. So we Christians need to be around these guys, to feel safe, to feel good about ourselves. Again, there's the self. And yet from my critique, and I'm one of these people, many clergy can't see outside the church because their assumption is the key to fixing all of this is to get a better church. And so I want to repeat from last week that we still live in a profoundly religious society that's hungry for God and the transcendent. So I'm not equating, hear me out, I'm not equating the unraveling with rampant secularism. We don't live in a world of unbelief. People are yearning to believe in something. When you're out with your friends, you need to understand that they are yearning to believe in something. But what Christians and the church have offered them is a God who is mainly useful to the self. A God who is useful to supporting the self, a God who is useful to supporting someone's version of the state or someone's version of capitalism. And they see through it. That's why there's been a wholesale rejection of the the religious right and other things that are attached to that or equated with that. Is there any ray of hope? Well, it's interesting that the biblical narrative, and we'll get into the Bible here, the biblical narrative reveals that it's in the space of unraveling that God's future is revealed. It's in that space of of unraveling that there's this great unraveling that there's also great opportunity because it's always, at least in the biblical narratives, in the space of the unraveling where you don't know what's coming, where God's future emerges. I believe that it's very possible that this great unraveling is a gift from God to us in this time period because it is forcing us potentially to ask God-centered questions. Meaning by that, 
What might God be doing? What might God be up to? Rather than just coasting along with our lives being all intact and our future being guaranteed and our pile of money being guaranteed to live off the rest of our life because capitalism is still in place and the economy is robust and the state is fixing all of our problems. Instead, with this unraveling, it's offering us the opportunity to say, maybe we need to turn to God. Maybe he has a future for us that we haven't paid attention to, that we're not aware of. And so for churches in North America, I believe it means resisting the impulse to depend upon human agency. And it goes like this. The church is in trouble. We're not growing. So we can figure out some kind of tactic or strategy to fix the church and to make it work again. I believe that the Spirit is inviting us into having an entirely different imagination. A much bigger imagination than simply settling for fixing the church. And I think this unraveling invites us into a different posture and a different imagination. And that's the reason for turning to Jeremiah 29. So I'd like to invite you to take a Bible that's underneath your seat if you don't have one with you. It's page 656, the text that Aaron read to us this morning already. And we looked at it last week, but I want to revisit it again as a tie-in to starting the book of Daniel next Sunday. I promise I won't do three introductions. Jeremiah 29, page 656 in the Blue Bibles. And while you're turning there, the context is very important. It's the Babylonian captivity, 605 B.C. Israel has been defeated in war. Thousands of people have been deported to a distant land where they're living in a foreign culture with a foreign language with religions that's religion that's not their own. And God sends Jeremiah to tell these people, verse 5, look at it again and slowly look at it. This is modern-day Iraq, okay? These are Jews. Jews in Iraq. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, this was counterintuitive. And most of us sitting out here that read the Bible don't realize how counterintuitive this was. Here's why this was counterintuitive. Because if you had been defeated, if you had been defeated in war, and most of your brightest best had been carted off into captivity, if your capital city had been destroyed, then that meant your God had been defeated. Because in the ancient Near East, war and gods were attached. So for Israel to be defeated by the Babylonians meant that their God had been defeated and what they needed to do was get along, accept that defeat, and assimilate. And this is what had happened to the northern kingdom about a hundred and something years earlier. They had been conquered by the Assyrians, they had been carted off into captivity, and they had been, they assimilated to the Assyrians The Babylonians then conquered the Assyrians 
In the northern kingdom, the people in captivity then assimilated to the Babylonian culture. And that explains, in part, the ten lost tribes of Israel. Assimilation. But here, Jeremiah offers hope. He offers hope of an eventual return, verse 10. He says it's going to be in 70 years. But it's going to take place by becoming a creative minority. The hope is linked to their becoming a creative minority. The language of creative minority, if you're wondering, and that's the name of the the series, I've named it uh, Living as a Creative Minority. The language of the creative minority comes from the British historian Arnold Toynbee. And there's a, I love that photo. I wish I could look like that. (laughs) That's just so sweet, man. That guy just looks so cool. And he wrote a book, he died in 1975. Uh, he wrote a book about, he wrote about the decline of civilizations in his book, A Study of History. The question that he addressed is, once a civilization begins to decline, can it recover? Can it revive? And Toynbee differed with some of the other historians of his day where he says that because civilizations have both a material and a spiritual dimension, it's a spiritual dimension that made Toynbee unique in his view of history. He says that because civilizations have both a material and a spiritual dimension, they have the possibility of recovery. But that possibility belongs to the creative minorities. And that's what Jeremiah is saying in Jeremiah 29. He is saying in the text that we read that it's possible to live as a minority living in a country whose religion and culture and political and legal systems are not your own, and yet sustain your identity to remain, sustain your identity as the people of God, remain faithful in covenant faithfulness to God while contributing to the common good. But it isn't easy. Whether in Babylon in 605 BC or in North America, in the 21st century A.D. It isn't easy because it requires a finessing of identities. It requires a finessing of identities. It's like this. It's like being a Jewish teenager in Iraq. Babylon. Daniel's story. And that's what we're going to be looking at. How does Daniel, a teenager, probably 13 to 15 years of age, do what he does in Babylon? It's also about living with tension, which I find in my trafficking with people, including Christians, that most of us are not comfortable with. And we'll see Daniel maintain strong links with the world around him while maintaining true to his identity as, a, as someone who belongs to God and remaining faithful to God. And he doesn't just seek to maintain faithfulness to God, but he also seeks to transform the larger society. And this is a demanding posture. It's, it's not for the faint-hearted. It's full of risk. But it's also very creative. 
And the Bible is full of examples of creative minorities. Once you start to understand this concept, you go like, oh my gosh, it's all over the place. It begins with a group or a nation that faces some kind of threat to its continued existence. Israel, the people of God, climate threat, Genesis, a famine in the land. God sends Joseph into captivity into Egypt. He ends up in Pharaoh's court and he rescues the entire ancient Near East in the midst of one of the greatest famines ever. Biological threat. The killing of the male infants by the Egyptian pharaoh to reduce the threat of overpopulation of the Israelites in Egypt, the book of Exodus. Moses raises Moses up. Political threat, Esther. Esther uses her influence before the Persian king to prevent genocide by the Persians against the Jews in the 5th century B.C. Military threat. Daniel uses his influence to shape the culture of the greatest military power in the 7th century B.C. It's all in there. It really is. This is not just a book for your personal devotion. This is talking about history. This is talking about the future. This is talking about God. This is talking about the possibilities for us in light of what God has done in the past. That's why historians study history, to see what might be possible based upon what has happened. But we got God as the main actor in this story. And so a group or a nation faces a threat to its continued existence and an individual or a small group comes up with an innovative solution that opens the door to a larger victory or larger impact. And as the, the, the understanding of the creative minority goes, the majority then recognizes what the creative minority has done and proceeds to follow the lead and even imitate it. The nation, the culture then flourishes as a result even though it never lasts forever. Toynbee talked about this. Jonathan Sachs talks about this. Others have talked about this. Now here's my question to you. What if we're in one of these moments? Do you ever ask yourself about where you are in human history? What if we're in one of these moments? where the great unraveling is a great opportunity to discover God's future. What if we're in one of these moments where this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to step into a different imagination and to be part of something unique that God is about ready to do? What if we're in one of these moments where some new possibility is opening up for a creative minority like your family or you and some other people from Grace or you and some other people in your neighborhood begin to function as a creative minority to bring flourishing to a neighborhood, to a city, a state, a nation? History is full of these types of people. William Wilberforce, the Clapham sect. People who didn't go out and say, I want to transform the world, but understood what it was like to function as a creative minority, did that, and God used them to affect 
even nations in the globe, the whole world. Why not? What if we are facing that opportunity to be part of something like that? 